Morning, everyone. Happy hump day. Welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by The Mirror's crime editor, Tom Pettiford. Morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, this is the People's Pay-Per-View, so get into the comments, ask us your questions. Uh, the best ones do come up on screen. Those of you listening later on podcast, I'm afraid you can't do that. You'll just have to open a window and bark at cars. So what have we got today? Well, the Mirror has splashed on news that a Tory MP has been arrested on suspicion of rape, among other things, and has been banned from the parliamentary estate. We can't talk about that for legal reasons. But inside is what happens at the other end of the criminal process with news that racist killer David Norris is making a bid for freedom. And this is Tom's story, which is why he's joining us today. You've got one in the paper, Tom. Well done. Take us through this, Tom. This is one of the guys who was convicted very, very late on for the murder of Stephen Lawrence, wasn't it? That's right. So Stephen was um, an 18 year old student living in southeast London, um, a black boy who was murdered while he was waiting for a bus in Eltham with his friend Dwayne Brooks in April 1993. Um, the pair of them were attacked by a group of white youths shouting racist language and Stephen was stabbed twice and he tried to run away, bled to death on the pavement. Um, the picture you can see there are five individuals who were arrested on suspicion of the murder, but they, they weren't arrested immediately, despite the police having their names very early on. And there were a string of failings in the investigation, which led to the Met eventually being um, branded institutionally racist. Um, so this case has had a huge impact on policing and on British society and remains emblematic, really, of how um, black people are dealt with by the justice system and there are still a lot of concerns about how black people are dealt with um, by the justice system. So here we have today the news that, um, uh, sorry, I didn't explain, eventually after nearly 20 years, two of the suspects were finally convicted following an investigation um, led by a detective called Clive Driscoll um, and that involved finding um, forensic evidence on items of clothing that the suspects had been wearing that had been kept. So these two individuals, David Norris and Gary Dobson, were jailed, but they were jailed um, using sentencing guidelines of the time. The, the judge had to sentence them on the law as it was in 93, and also they, they were both youths, so... Um, uh, Norris was 16, Dobson was 17, so that meant also that their, their, their sentences weren't as long as they could have been, as they would have been if they were sentenced um, at the time. So anyway, uh, Norris got a minimum of 14 years, three months, and he is now, we are reporting today, um, applying, he has applied to go to open conditions um, which is his right as um, a lifer. Uh, you, if you're if you're serving a life sentence, you have the right to apply to go to open conditions two years before the end of your minimum sentence um, in preparation for your potential release. And what uh, does open conditions what does open conditions mean, Tom? That's just a, a cushier jail, is it? Mm, cushier jail. I don't think any jails are particularly cushy, but it means. <laughs> Is that you are um, you you get to go out into um, the, the outside world um, maybe a day a week and they try and get you a placement a work placement 
quite rightly to try because you can imagine he went into jail uh, 10 years ago. The world's a very different place now. And um, he's been in a cell, hasn't been working, hasn't been interacting with new technology. So the, the idea is to get individuals ready to be integrated back into society because we want um, former prisoners to be active members of society. We don't want them to be um, shunned or find it, it very difficult to reintegrate because then obviously they're much more likely to reoffend. So the idea is to try and slowly integrate them back in. So an open prison would be, as it sounds, it's much less enclosed and you give them more freedom slowly and independence and trust if um, if officials feel that you're ready for that trust and you can be trusted. But obviously in this case, the Ministry of Justice has sometimes what can happen at this at this um, juncture is that your case goes to the parole board. So some expert individuals can look at your case and decide whether you're safe to go to open. But in this case, the minister has not even allowed that to happen. He has just said you're not going. Um, we don't know why he's made that decision, um, but that's the, the decision that he made. All right. Okay. Now ask us your questions, everybody. What do you think about David Norris coming to the end of his sentence about being rehabilitated? Do you think he should have his chance to, to rebuild his life? Annette says he shouldn't get out or be integrated. And then a fortune spent on a new identity. I don't think you get a new identity, Annette. He's not he's not that kind of uh, criminal. He's not like a, one of the Bulger killers. But um, he would, you know, he would come out at some point. But obviously, as you said in your piece, uh, Tom, Dominic Raab has said, no, you're not coming out, probably for exactly the reasons that Annette has said, which is that the, all the suspects in Stephen Lawrence's murder have had a life which shows them to be continuing to be quite criminal, shall we say. Um, and there's the sort of sense that most people would think that a murder of a, of a young man of whatever colour, but especially with all those racist overtones to it, is not something that is very easy to be rehabilitated from. So is is Norris going to have any right of appeal against this decision? If that just because Dominic Raab has said no, does that mean that's it? Does it actually get can he can he appeal and get it to the parole board? That's a good question and I have to admit that I don't know. I'm not a legal expert, but I have a feeling that he will be in difficulties trying to appeal this because it's he doesn't even have a right for it to go to the parole board yet. It's up to the minister and he's not even at the end of his sentence. So when he does definitely have a legal right is when he comes to the end of his minimum sentence, then every single inmate has the right to go before the parole board and apply for release no matter how you've behaved during your um, time in jail, that's, you, you finished, you, you've finished your minimum sentence. So that is when he definitely has a legal right to apply for release. And that will be in December 2014, which in many people's minds won't 2014. be very... 2024. Sorry, <laughs> not going back in time. I'm, it's um, early in not, My timeline's a bit muddled with this. Yeah, 2024. So a um, couple of years' time, he will have that opportunity. It's quite hard to be released. I, I think it's fairly unheard of to get released from closed conditions. So the fact that he's uh, been blocked from going to open conditions now probably means that he won't be released when um, his minimum sentence expires. Well, exactly. 
Um, now, Rose says Stephen Lawrence has got no life. It's very difficult for some people, obviously, to hear about prisoners and convicted murderers being given their rights um, when someone else has had every single right taken away by their actions. But that is what makes us as civilization rather than just the rule of the, rule of the street. Um, but like you say, Tom, uh, you know, when he gets round to the end of his minimum sentence, which is only 14 years or so, he's going to apply to the parole board and say, well, I'm all completely rehabilitated. He's going to do the Shawshank thing and try to get out. But um, if the fact that the, the justice secretary at this point is saying, no, no, you're, you're staying, um, you're staying in, in there for now. Does that is a very good indication, isn't it? That when he gets round to the, the, the end of his minimum sentence, that the justice secretary is going to block it again, regardless of what the parole board might say. Well, at the moment, the way that, it works is that the Justice Secretary can't block um, the Pro Board's decision, but he has recently said that he's going to change the law so that um, he can. So that is something that the public need to decide whether they're happy with politicians who um, may not know cases inside out deciding on who's safe to be released and who isn't, as opposed yeah. to a board of um, professionals who often have read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of um, of the case, know it inside out, um, deciding whether or not someone's safe to be released. I mean, the parole board's under a lot of pressure at the moment because of recent um, controversies. Uh, uh, people probably remember what happened with um, the black taxi rapist, John Warboys. Uh, he was cleared for release despite virtually none of his victims being warned of that mm. and the board didn't actually take into account they only took into account the offenses which he was convicted of but he had a huge number of offenses that he wasn't and that they weren't considered and that was reversed after two of the victims took their own legal challenge against the parole board so that really did show problems with the, the way that it works and the parole board are trying to open up so this summer they're going to allow um, victims to sit through uh, the whole uh, of hearings, which should have happened a long time ago. Very important. I think there's a real imbalance, as you say, between victims and um, perpetrators and victims need a lot more representation in the process. Whether or not we need a politician making the final decision is uh, for people. Well, I wouldn't trust Dominic Raab with a spoon, never mind a decision. Now, um, Steve says, "Has morning, Steve. Has the Met Police been rehabilitated so it is fit to be on the streets? We can't lock up the Metropolitan Police, Steve. Nice idea. Um, but, you know, we just lock up the, the individuals in the Metropolitan Police when they get caught out, like Wayne Cousins. Mike, well, I think, sorry, but there is a good point to be made there, that if the job had been done properly at the beginning, then these potentially more people would have been jailed and there would have been proper justice. So at the heart of this story is a family who have lost their son, their brother, this, you know, and um, they didn't get the justice that they deserved. And that, I think that is really the, the main point. So the fact that he's now on his way being released in the coming years um, is kind of more an issue. It sort of reflects on this, this huge injustice that's been done to the family, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah, it makes it yeah. Now, Mike says, understanding the nature of this crime, I'm still a bit concerned that a sole government minister, same point you made, Tom, has the power to override legal and sentencing guidelines. Any minister who can unilaterally decide a bad person can't go through the legal process. Not terribly great. Um, 
But on that last point that you made, Tom, if if a young black man were to be stabbed at a bus stop today in the same circumstances, would the police do better or would we still be facing some of the same problems? Um, no, I mean, I think if there was a racially motivated attack now, the police would be would do far, far better. And now we have specific um trained murder squads to deal with these um, attacks. So there, 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 there's been huge changes, partly because of this case, a lot of, to down to this case, actually. Um, but there are still huge issues about relations between the police, especially in London, but definitely in other cities as well, and um, the black community. And you, there, there's not still not a reflection of, uh, in, in the force, if you look at the senior management, there's no... Um, black people in the very top of um, the Met Police and also um, in rank and file, you know, we need to make the force more reflective of the society that we live in. That's how it's going to work. If, if people, people are going to trust a force that looks like them, really, as to some extent. And in central London, where you have large percentages of the population are non-white you have a lot of white officers coming a lot of them live outside of london as well because they can't afford to live in london uh so that, that doesn't work and they don't have quite the same officers sometimes they get they get drafted in don't they from outside forces and stuff uh and we've seen multiple cases of uh going through the sort of the the complaints process at the moment about people who are stopped um, without good reason, but just happen to be black. So there is obviously still some stuff to be dealt with there. And um, uh, I, when these kind of things come up, I always just think about Doreen uh, and Neville, about Stephen's parents and Dwayne and how they're going to cope when and if uh, the killers do get released and what's going to happen. And I'm sure that anyway, even if they do, I know there's some quite angry comments uh today but if they do i'm sure the police are going to be following dobson and norris for quite a long time so uh i don't think they're going to be coming out out in the way that you know the rest of us might just walk out of jail and start a life again i think they're going to have police attention for quite a while let's hope so anyway now uh, ask us your questions everybody do get into the comments uh please don't be too violent or unpleasant about the killing <laughs> i just horrible thing to say about violent unpleasant killers but you know we can't put up comments that are uh, really grim so if you've got some thoughtful comments about uh the release of david norris do let us know but now we're going to move on to the next story we've got an all-star cast on the show this morning because i've got a story in the paper too Woo um so this time it's another revelation about britain's nuclear test veterans who featured on the show a lot because it's my show um, and we found 300 pages of internal MOD memos about the planning and results of something that was called Operation Mosaic in 1956, when two uh, atomic bombs were detonated off the coast of Australia. One of them was 98 kilotons. That's five times more powerful than the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, a destroyer, a British Navy destroyer called HMS Diana was ordered to sail through the fallout of those two bombs uh, for a total of 16 hours while most of the crew were locked below deck. But these papers show that the ship was steamed with her vents open to see what contamination could come inside the ship and to be found later. It also found that the radiation safety limits were equivalent to a year's worth of background radiation in just a day. And the device for measuring the radiation would only detect levels hundreds of times higher than that, which, of course, means the safety limits are completely defunct because there was no way of making sure everyone was, was, was safe. 
And worst of all, Tom, um, the medical director general of the armed forces at the time, a chap called John Morley Holford, who went on to be personal physician to the Queen, uh, agrees to those doses, saying that he appreciates in these infrequent and very expensive operations, it is reasonable that some slight risks should be incurred by personnel rather than that important records and observations should be lost. Now, we're going to post a link to both mine and Tom's online stories in the comments so you can read them in some detail. But, Tom, there's not an awful lot to say about these kind of memos beyond the fact they're sort of horrifying. But from your perspective and your specialism, if you had these kind of memos about something that related to a police force, even 70 years ago, that was deliberately exposing people to severe harm uh, that would possibly be affecting their families for generations, what would happen what would be done about it? Well, I would hope that there would be um, an inquiry, a, 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 an independent inquiry into who made these decisions, how far up the chain it went, and that there was a public apology and reparations um, given to the families of those who suffered, or even if some of them have survived, I'm not sure if they have. But it's absolutely shocking. I mean, I think people would understand that if you join um, the armed forces, you may have to go into combat and your life on the line. But to be have your life put on the line for no good reason because you're being experimented on is obviously um, truly shocking in in, yeah. in in this country. I mean, maybe we might think of this happening in somewhere like North Korea, but not in um, not in, in Britain. No, well, uh, they did do it in multiple countries around the world and every other country that did it has apologised or made some kind of reparation. But it does seem that uh, people who are in the armed forces and the nuclear test veterans in particular, and that's when we met Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham at the end of last year as part of the Mirrors campaign, um, <clears throat> they, they seem to think that the test veterans, it doesn't matter. This, that servicemen in the Cold War, it, it just it doesn't lead to an inquiry. It doesn't lead to an apology. It doesn't lead to reparations. It's just I can't get my head around it because if a hospital hurts people today, you know, if, if a baby dies by accident or, or malpractice, there's a huge fuss. If it happens in the police, there's a huge fuss. You know, if people are exposed to harm because of institutional a decision that was terrible, like I know, let's expose test veterans, let's expose servicemen to radiation and not bother measuring it properly because pff, it's expensive, then there would be something done. But with the test veterans, it's just under the carpet and forgotten about, unless, of course, you read the mirror. Well, I was going to say, it's not been forgotten about because you've done some brilliant work on this, Susie, and <clears throat> not brushed under the carpet. And I think it's going to just... You know, your campaigning will hopefully um, change things. It's definitely raising awareness anyway. Well, it's raising awareness. That's something at least. Thanks, Tom. Um, and we're, we're hoping that soon. And Boris Johnson has said he will take personal charge of giving these men the recognition they deserve. So let's see if something comes out of that before too much longer. Um, so get into the comments, everybody. Let us know what you think about that. What do you think about uh, servicemen being irradiated? Do you think that, that you know, there should be they should stop moaning and it was absolutely fine and they, they should have had experiments and observations made of them because that's how we've got our nuclear deterrent there is an argument for that i suppose um let us know but first off we do have some good news in the world uh, and it's not too bad today actually it's been a struggle recently tom finding good news the little tiny bit we found in the paper now and again but we've actually got a decent story today uh, and here it is
Now, we can't all be pop stars. Some of us can't even sing a note. But you need to remember, Paul McCartney can't read sheet music, still can't read music. So there may be hope for all of us because the National Trust, which owns his childhood home in Fourth Lynn Road in Liverpool, is opening it up to aspiring musicians to write and perform in. So it's only, um, you know, it's only a two up, two down. They're going to have to twist and shout a bit. But I've got a feeling that if they get back to some musical sort of roots like this, most musicians would agree that all you need is... Not love, but, you know, a free room where the neighbours don't mind the din you make. going to say, what are the neighbours happy about this? They're going to have <laughs> loads of young musicians smashing up the next door house. I suppose there well, won't be that. Terrible covers of Here Comes the Sun just over and over and over. And, over. <laughs> and throwing TVs out the window, that kind of thing. Will that be happening? I don't think the Hopefully. Beatles ever did that, did they? No, I know, but you know they need to. The, the, the young people need to sort of show them how how it should have been done. That's what we want from our rock stars, isn't it? Well, I, th I think Brandy Alexander's and some heroin uh, in John's later life may well uh, perhaps be the kind of thing they don't want in Fourth Lane Road. I don't know about Brandy Alexander's actually; they're quite good fun, um, but we'll have to see. But I suppose you know Paul and John did used to write and sing in the toilet in that house because it was better acoustics so they were all squeezed into the bog to do it so you know don't let me down musicians you know what to do if you get in there write a track in the loo because that would be very cool might need to give it five minutes as <laughs> a song called i'll give it five minutes if i were you <laughs> now sarah says um, sorry, I've changed, changed tack entirely now as of a segue. Sarah's going back to the story about Stephen Lawrence and uh, letting out rehabilitating killers. Uh, we let little James Bulger's killer out and gave them um, a lifelong license. Even though John Venables has gone on to commit further crimes and continues to commit crimes, where does it end? There's always that argument, isn't there, Tom, that there's always going to be someone that they let out and they can re recommit crimes again. But People often, when they talk about John Venables, they often forget the other killer whose name is just as completely escaped. John Thompson. Bob Thompson Robert is just Thompson. Robert, yeah. yes, completely escaped me. Um, who has been rehabilitated, it would appear, is living quietly and well and and is is doing exactly what the system would is there to do. Yep. So the success stories we don't hear about because they've done well and they've um not got the mead tension because they haven't reoffended. Um, but sadly, in some cases, like Venables, um, individuals can't stop themselves reoffending, and so he's had to be brought back into the prison estate. He's already had one parole turned down, and I'm, I think he's about to probably be referred for another parole hearing. And I can understand why people get very angry and upset about this because it's really awful what what he did. Um, but I think also. And, and he's obviously offending in adulthood, but child offenders and children that do things like this should be looked at in a slightly different way, in my opinion, because um, children that do such horrendous acts, uh, you know, there's a reason why they've done this. And I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying that um, it's very complex and pretty awful. Um, but yes, I can understand why people are very angry about the Venables case. Yeah, and the, I've sat in my fair share of court cases as well, Tom, and the, the, I don't think there's ever been a case where I sat and looked at someone in the dock and thought, you've just decided to be appalling. They, it's always something where combination of things has rolled them to that point and they, they've lost 
sometimes raising, sometimes parenthood, sometimes life, but they always seem to have just lost their way somehow or another. And that's not to show sympathy for them. It's just to understand how it happens. But yeah. Tina says, how do they know it was racist? The murder of Stephen Lawrence, uh, they were heard shouting racist abuse, weren't they? Yeah, independent witnesses heard the um, racist language, which I'm not going to repeat. Um, and they, the, the, the individuals involved were filmed, if you read the article that I've written today, um uh, norris was secretly filmed by the police using really awful racist language and talking about um going and attacking black people um so yes there's no doubt even, even the police in 93 admitted it was a racist attack and i can tell you at that time they did not do that easily because the year before a boy called roland adams had been murdered by a gang shouting similar language and the the Met refused to acknowledge that it was racist. The judge did, but the Met didn't. So there's yeah. no doubt about that, the fact it was racist. Yeah, no, I think it's just that, unfortunately, it should, shouldn't take the death of some young man to change the the way that the police operate and make him better. But that's, I suppose that's one benefit of Stephen's murder, if there is any at all. Now, Steve says, uh, the UK government needs to recognise they tested atomic weapons on personnel. The only difference with testing a nuke or a rifle on men is bullets have an immediate health effect. Radiation poisons over time and generations. There would be uproar if bullets were tested on men. So why not nukes? He's got, I mean, Steve's dad was at Maralinga uh, in South Australia where they were, they conducted just under 600 horrible radioactive uh, explosions, um, not nuclear explosions, but radioactive ones to see what would happen to nuclear weapons in the event of an accident, like a fire or someone dropped it or something like that. Uh, and he's got undiagnosable health conditions. So he's got a point, isn't he, Tom? Because when they test rifles and guns and bullets and tanks, they blow up pigs. <clears throat> they shoot them. They don't, mm. they don't detonate it on their own troops. Absolutely. So there, there really is, I mean, you're, you're putting not only the person's life in danger, but as you say, it's generations to come as well. That's just, it's, it's just awful. It's really beggars belief that they, they can do that and then not accept that it was wrong and take mm. some responsibility for it. I mean, you know, to, what, why, why wouldn't you do that? Ask the veterans and their families to prove it when, frankly, it should be up to the MOD to prove that it wasn't radiation, it was something else. Uh, and interestingly, they've never said, they've never come up with a different thing. They've never examined the phenomenon of 10 times the normal rate of birth defects and three times the normal rate of miscarriages and one in five child, five times the normal rate of, of infant mortality. They just say, well, it's not radiation. They don't say, we need to look at it and find out what it is then. They just go, and walk away. Um, but not if I have my say gonna get them if it kills me um right thank you everybody for taking part thank you tom for uh checking in with us and letting Thanks us know what's you. going on there um those of you listening on podcast please leave us a nice review uh or a horrible one i don't care really but a nice one if you can because uh, it helps other people find us on the podcasty things uh, and we'll see you all again next monday for another edition of the news agenda goodbye <laughs>